The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. You can be seated. The, the first time I ever heard that song, uh, it was at a conference and I think it was around 4,000 people or so singing that song and it's not probably shocking to you if you've if you've heard me for any length of time but I think it brought me to tears (laughs) but imagine getting to sing our praises to our savior to our God in the new heavens and new earth where we're surrounded with the full the full body of Christ the bride how beautiful it will be And how powerful it will be just to hear the voices of God's children singing his praises. It'll it'll be wonderful. Let me pray and we'll uh, we'll get into the word this morning. Father, just thank you for your love for us. I thank you that we uh, who are weak and sinful get to gather together to worship you, that you have given us uh, that great privilege of calling upon you, of singing our praises to you, that you have revealed yourself to us, not only in creation, but in your word and your son, Jesus Christ, that we get to uh, read and study your word, that we get to look to Christ Just enjoy all the good gifts that you have given us in him. Father, even had you never rescued us through your son, as your your creatures, it is our duty to worship you. Yet you have gone so far beyond mere duty. You have adopted us into your family through the perfect righteousness of your son, through his death, burial, and resurrection. He has ascended on high, and we get to call upon you not not merely out of duty, but as your children. We get to enjoy worshiping you and obeying you, no longer out of a slavish fear, but out, out of a childlike obedience. Help us now as we come before your word. Pray that you would help us to be humble, Help us to delight in your word. Help us to submit to your word. Father, help me in my own weakness to be able to preach your word clearly and accurately. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we are... Continuing our, our summer series on misunderstood passages. And uh, the, the misunderstood passage that I selected uh, for my sermon this morning is, is uh, taken out of Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. And as I read it, it'll be very familiar to you. Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
So what's, what's the common misunderstanding or the, the misuse of this verse? Well, a lot of times, if I, I'm guessing you have heard it said, you've probably said it yourself. I have said it myself in maybe a small gathering. I, I grew up in a small Baptist church, and on a Sunday evening, there were sometimes just a small handful of us gathered. And especially when there's just a small number of people gathered, maybe at a, a service like that or a prayer service, it's encouraging to say in your prayer, Lord, we, we uh, take uh, comfort in knowing that even where two or three are gathered, there you are. It's comforting to, to say those words, to, to uh, appeal to this promise of Christ that he is present even in a small gathering of believers. Now, first we have to say this isn't, that truth is not fully inaccurate, right? God is present with his children, he is present in a gathering of, of two or three people who are coming to, to call upon him. That is a true thing to say, Lord, we thank you that you're present. But he, the great news is he's also present in the gathering of four or more. And even greater than that is he's present when you are privately praying to him. When you are in your own private worship, your own drive to your work. When we are in Christ, he is ever present with us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So it would really be accurate to, to kind of claim that promise of, of Christ that he is ever present with his children. The difficulty with this verse, Matthew 18, 20, taking it and, and applying it just to that is that we really miss the beauty and the point that, that Christ is actually drawing our attention to in this passage. So we have, to, we have to wonder what, we have to ask, what is the proper context for this verse? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Well, this small section here begins with, in verse 15, Christ saying this, if your brother sins against you. If your brother sins against you. So Christ here is, is talking about a, a personal uh, wrong against you. We, we take this passage and we uh, kind of learn from it how best to practice uh, this form of church discipline but specifically, what Christ is talking about here is a private wrong. Someone has sinned against you. And these uh, references to two or three, which he actually mentions, I think, twice in, this, in, this, uh, in these few verses. The original audience that Christ is speaking to, this, this Jewish audience, would have immediately he heard the language of two or three and thought of a passage like Deuteronomy 19.15, which says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime 
or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. There, there is this continuing thought in the, with the Jewish mind and what, the, what God has revealed through the law of this importance of two or three witnesses. So when they heard two or three, they would have immediately gone to this place, understanding that something, this, this sin, this wrongdoing is being established on the uh, by the witness of two or three individuals. So as I've already said, Matthew 18, really 15 through 20, is falling into this category of church discipline. And I, I want to say, use this language of category of church discipline or area of church discipline, because oftentimes when we think of church discipline, our minds actually go to this passage, Matthew 18, uh, maybe 1 Corinthians 5, but discipline is something really that happens all the time. I'm going to get into this more in a, in a Sunday school class in a couple of weeks uh, in our Ordinary Means of Grace Sunday school class as I talk about the ordinary means of church discipline. But church discipline is something that actually happens all the time. It's happening right now as I'm, as I'm declaring the word of God, as I'm teaching the word of God before you. Church discipline is happening. It's teaching so church discipline doesn't always have to do with confronting people of their sin, of walking people through these steps of church discipline. So this is an area, though, of church discipline. And it's an area that we ought not to disregard. And yet it's when we think of this area, this category of church discipline, it's one we tend to shrink away from. If you're like me, I am so uncomfortable trying to go to someone to point out some error, some sin. When someone does wrong to me, ooh, I am not the best at just going and saying, hey, Ryan, I'll pick on, I'll pick on my boss. Hey, Ryan, you know, you did this thing. That's just wrong. You know, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. My wife will be the first one. <laughs> She's smiling back there. My wife would be the first one to say, yeah, Jeremy does not like confrontation. And yet, as, as we look at this passage, we really ought to walk away seeing, as I said, the beauty of church discipline. We ought not neglect it. But so often we shrink away from it because we think it's unloving. It just seems like it might be unloving to go to someone and tell them that they might be in error. They might have sinned. Maybe we think it's intolerant or repressive to go to someone. And this is kind of a, even more so established in our culture. The more, the more our culture embraces uh, kind of relative truth. Like why don't, don't speak against my truth. But as Christians, we realize there is an absolute truth. And I would hope as a believer, we would embrace that and find joy in the security of knowing that because we have God, a God who has revealed himself to us, there is also an absolute truth that he teaches us. But it can feel like we're being intolerant to tell someone that they are in error or wrong. 
are, we tend to operate in kind of a couple sinful extremes. Individually, even as a, as a church. One, kind of again born out of this fear of, of being unloving or intolerant or repressive. One is simply ignoring sin. Because we fear these things and we fear, quite frankly, we fear the person rather than our creator. We think, eh, we're not going to enter into that realm. We don't, we don't need to confront someone on their sin. We're afraid. We're afraid of bringing sin into the light and showing sin to be sin. This was the error that we see, uh, especially in the, the church in Corinth, as Paul wrote his first letter to them. And there is a kind of clear sin that they were not addressing. They, they were so puffed up in their pride of theology and the gifts that they simply winked at the sin that was happening in their own congregation. Another extreme that we find ourselves sometimes in is responding too harshly. You see, it's easy for us on one hand to ignore sin, but then on the other hand, it can be really easy just to come in, slamming our fists down on the table, and say, oh, I'm sick and tired of your sin. Get out. Right? Just jumping to that kind of quick conclusion of removing someone from our midst, because sometimes, you know what, it's a lot easier just to say, there's the door. I don't want to deal with your sin anymore. I don't want to have to walk through this with you anymore. Peace. I, I heard a, a story from another church how, how they practiced church discipline once. I don't, I don't know if it's uh, totally great. I think it, it, it a, a bit ignores the bringing sin into the light. But what it does embody is a patience and uh, kind of long suffering with the sinner. The, the story was this. A wife in the congregation was quite convinced that her husband was having an affair. She said he, he disappears at night and doesn't come back till the early morning. And I found some text messages on his phone, that, that sort of thing. So some of the men in the church, they said, you call us up when he leaves at night. So they'd get a call, they'd get their lawn chairs, and they'd go, set up camp in his front yard. And they would, and they prayed for him all night long until he showed up. And when he showed up, they said, hey, John, we just wanted to make sure you returned safely. We want you to know that we're praying for you. And they'd fold up their lawn chairs and they leave. And this happened over and over and over again. And eventually one night John came home and broke down in tears and said, brothers, I have to confess my sin to you. I have been having an affair. I don't think they said it. But it was like, well, why else do you think we've been camping in your front yard? 
there, there's that aspect of, you know, that story that I think we sometimes miss in our church of that patient, patiently waiting with the sinner, praying for them. Might not be a struggle that they're, from, that they're aware of, but we are in the trenches with them. Really, that's the beauty of not, not ignoring the sin on the one extreme and not responding too harshly and just showing them the door so quickly. Think of these fears, this, the fear of being unloving, the fear of being intolerant or oppressive. Think of a, a household, a family running this way. I'm going to use myself as an example. I have two boys who sometimes drive me crazy. I love those guys, but they can drive me absolutely bonkers sometimes. Imagine if as a parent, I thought, you know what? I can't, I can't tell my son, my son to uh, correct this behavior because I, it'd just be unloving. I can't tell my child to do this thing because he'll view me as being repressive. And imagine that family. I, I, would, I would venture to say that, that that would be a house kind of run amok. It would get crazy quickly and I would be shocked if my son survived to very, very far in life. I can imagine now my two-year-old running out to the street like, oh, I can't do that. That's just, it's unloving for me. He, he wants to have fun going out into that street. I, I, I'm just not, not going to say it. I'm going to bite my tongue. And my little boy runs out in the streets, get, gets clobbered by a car. That's an extreme example, but we don't parent that way. As fathers and mothers, we, we help guide our children. When we see them in an error or sin, we point it out to them and try to, try to direct them. We understand also, sometimes you have to learn by experience. And as much as we tell them something, they still choose to run out into the street. And Lord willing, they're not having an experience, which is their last experience. But as parents, there's only so much we can do. We realize that. But we don't take this hands-off approach because taking a hands-off approach is actually the unloving thing to do. It is a loving parent who comes around and guides their child who tells them this is right and this is wrong. It's a loving parent who realizes, I want my, my boys, my daughters to grow up and to know how to uh, make good decisions. I want them to be able to grow up and know how to do simple things like washing the dishes and doing a load of laundry. So I am going to teach them. I am, putting, I am realizing they are under my discipline. I'm going to teach them how to do these things. I am going to let them do some 
hard labor sometimes in the yard that they may not want to do because it helps them to grow up to be young men, to take on these responsibilities of life. We, we see this really drawn out in Hebrews chapter 12. And this will lead us into our passage this morning in Matthew. But understanding how our Heavenly Father views discipline. Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, repro when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they are earthly fathers. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the spirit that Christ is here addressing to the audience in Matthew 18. And as we've done with all, our, all these passages that deal with some sort of misunderstanding, the best place to bring us kind of through the correct understanding is through the proper context of the passage. And I want to start off by looking at the, the larger context of the passage the, the teaching of our Savior right before this passage and the teaching right after the passage. Because what Christ is doing is showing us the extremes that we generally work, uh, operate in. And then he brings us to show us this proper course, this biblical course of dealing with our brother who sins against us. In Matthew 18 verses 10 through 14, we have the parable of the lost sheep. And if you remember the story, it's the shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and yet one has gone astray. One is missing. He has his 99 sheep in security, and the one has gone away. Well, our extreme here would be 99 out of 100 ain't bad. I could go off and try to find the one that's missing, but why would I go? Leave the 99 for the one. I've, I've got 99. I, I'm, I'm good with that. 
And yet God shows us, and Christ shows us in this parable, the beauty of our heavenly father as he pursues the one who is lost for the purpose of restoration, of bringing him, this one lost sheep, back into the fold. To bring the 100 back together again. Again, our extreme is to ignore the lost sheep. God's course is restoration of the missing sheep. And then, Matthew 18, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, it's that familiar parable of the unforgiving servant. It's the, the, the servant who's brought before the king has this massive debt that he owes the king. It's like a, a lifetime of wages. And he's brought before the king and the king threatens to throw him into prison because he hasn't paid his debt. And he falls down and in tears begs that his debt would be forgiven. And the king graciously forgives the debt. And the servant then walks out. It's the odd twist of the story. You've got to pay attention to the twists and the parables. This servant who's just been forgiven a lifetime of debt goes and finds another servant who owes him a very relatively small debt. And you'd think, well, he's going to forgive, right? He's going to forgive this, this other servant who owes, owes him money. But no, he says, I demand my debt. And this servant falls on his knees and through tears says, will you please forgive me this debt? I'll, I'll do my best. I'll, I'll try to repay it. And he says, no, too late. And he throws him in prison. Well, the king hears about that and says, whoa, time out. I forgave you a lifetime of debt and you then turn around and throw your brother who owes you such a small debt into prison? Because of that, I am throwing you into prison. In this story, we see kind of lived out this sinful extreme of ours of dealing harshly with the sinner. Those of us who have been forgiven such a huge debt, then turning and saying, oh, you stinky, rotten sinner. There's the door. That's the equivalent of it. So in this parable, Christ shows us this other extreme of ours in being harsh and unforgiving. And he points out, though, God's course. God's course is forgiveness. That all started with Peter asking, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And the answer that Christ gives him is, as often as he comes, as often as he sins against you and comes and asks for forgiveness, that's how often you forgive him. Over and over and over and over and over again. And it's never ending. So we have this, the parable of the lost sheep 
teaching us restoration. And we have the parable of the unforgiving servant teaching us forgiveness. And in the middle of that, we have the instruction of how to deal with a brother who sins against you. So let's read that together. And we'll just look at a few things as, um, in this passage. Matthew 18, beginning with verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So first, again, we have the setup of what to do when a brother sins against us. And the first thing we notice, the first instruction, he says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. What do we often do, though, when someone sins against us? We run and tell everyone else. We're going, have you heard what Brennan did to me? Have you heard these things? I can't believe he would do that. Hey, my favorite, my favorite line is, hey, you know, don't tell anyone else. But Brennan did this thing. Can you believe it? But just remember, though, that's between you and me. Don't, don't tell anyone else. This really sets up for us, I think, the heart Again, between these passages of restoration and forgiveness, this first verse sets this heart, this tone, that we have someone sin against us, and instead of gossiping, instead of slandering, instead of shaming them, we are going to that person privately, alone. And we are saying, hey, brother, you've done this thing to me. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The whole point is seeking to restore that relationship. If we are going to our brother or sister simply to shame them or because I just, I'm living in this angst and I just need to kind of Dump it all on you. And then it's up to you to do what you want to do. But it's going to make me feel better just to know, let you know, Brennan. Brennan's going to think I have a problem with him. I don't. I'm just, I'm just picking on the pastors because I can. But if I go in that spirit of just like, it's going to make me feel better. And I'm sorry that this whole thing is just going to be a burden on your shoulders. But at least I'm going to feel free and in the clear, that's wrong. The spirit is going to the person, that individual who you have perceived as sinning against you, going to them privately with the hope of restoration. 
Galatians 6, 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it quickly for us. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's not unloving to ignore our brother or sister's sin. It's not unloving. It's not intolerant or oppressive. It is loving to go to them. Calvin, in this understanding that we are all sinners, because we could easily say, you know what, we are all sinners. Jeremy's a sinner. Ryan's a sinner. Brennan's a sinner. Keep with my theme. Why, why do I need to bother going to them about sin? We all know we're sinners. Well, that's the spirit of ignoring sin. That's the spirit of ignoring that we are part of the body of Christ and that God is calling us to grow up in his holiness. So Calvin says, because we know that we are all sinners. It's not some hidden thing. It's a thing that we all know. We're all sinners. Because we know that, he says, it would be an outrageous cruelty not to go to our brother and confront him on his sin. An outrageous cruelty. So what if your brother then does not listen to you? Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The first thing here, this is a private sin. So the, the assumption, yeah, I think you, you can, as I said earlier, you can bring this pattern of, of discipline into a larger context. But this specific context is a brother sinning against a brother. So these two or three other witnesses aren't necessarily witnesses to the sin, but you are bringing them in to say, hey, this, this is what has happened. And John is unwilling to hear uh, this reproof, this rebuke, he is hardening his heart. So you're bringing in these witnesses to either witness to the fact that, yes, this is a legitimate wrong that has happened. This is an issue with John, and John is hardening his heart against this rebuke. That's what those witnesses are for. Another thing, though, what if I just happen to be an overzealous um, Pharisee, maybe? <laughs> what if I, in my zealousness, just love to correct people? And I bring these two or three witnesses in and I say, um, Jeremy, I don't think this is quite the issue that you think it is. Or I, we actually don't see that John's in any, in any sin here. 
This is taking it out of that realm of a brother against a brother, bringing two or three witnesses in to say it's either legitimate or illegitimate. Now in Christ's teaching here, I think the understanding is there's a legitimate sin happening. In verse 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. The, when, when Christ is first delivering this, the, the church as we think about it wasn't, really, wasn't in existence yet. The understanding here would be really bringing it before the, the elders, bringing it before the leaders of the church. So two or three witnesses have, have said, yes, this, this sin is legitimate. And John is refusing to listen to this reproof, this rebuke. We are now going to bring it before the elders. And it says, Christ says, that if he refuses uh, to listen to them, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Christ is here in this Jewish audience when he says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's bringing these, these two people groups before them that are like, oh, I don't want anything to do with Gentiles or tax collectors. They're the scum of society. They're the people that if I walk through their front yard, I kick off the dust of my shoes when I pass through. No, don't want anything to do with them. But what, what exactly is being presented here? 1 Corinthians 5 helps us to understand this maybe a little bit better. And this is when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about their own issues with refusing to discipline someone in their congregation. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual, sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I grew up in a context of people who were like boycotting this and boycotting that, and boy, I'm going to boycott that gas station because they sell such and such. I'm boycotting this hotel chain because it's owned by Mormons. I'm boycotting everything. Like, well, eventually you got to buy food from somewhere. Your gas is, your car is going to run out of gas. Your stomach's going to go empty. So you can't, you can't only go to the gas stations and call the plumbers who have the Christian fish on the back of their car. Paul's, Paul's saying, I didn't tell you to not, not be among the sinners of this world. What would we expect? We live in a sinful world, folks. It didn't at all, at all meaning not to associate with the sexual and moral of this world, with greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Say, anyone who really bears the name of Christ, anyone who, who claims to be in Christ. 
Anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This is, this is what Paul is talking about. Someone who claims the name of Christ and is refusing to listen to a rebuke, then at some point, they can't claim to be in Christ, to be part of this family and be celebrating the sin of this world. To say, I get the best of both worlds. I get to enjoy this, this community of the church that I really like because you know, they're really friendly people. I, don't, I, I enjoy coming and kind of singing with them and um, I enjoy sending my kids to the class. I think that's a good thing for kids. That, that's, I, I really love you know, that church culture. But at the same time, I'm going to be over here and really enjoy and celebrate what the world has to offer me. I'm going to be a drunk. You know, he mentions here drunkards and swindlers. Swindlers may be a more appropriate one. How many businessmen go to, go to church on Sunday and enjoy the fellowship of the, the body of Christ and then go into their secular job and think, I'm going to swindle those fools out of every last penny. Paul's saying you can't do that. You can't live in both worlds. So if we have a brother or sister who is trying to enjoy this family that we call church, and at the same time trying to enjoy all the pleasures and sins of the world, he says you have to treat them like they are not part of the family. And Lord willing, what, what's the goal of, of all of this? Guess what? It's still restoration. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Earlier in that same chapter, in verses 3 through 5, he says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the, for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Restoration and forgiveness. This seems harsh. It seems unloving to say, you know what, brother? You know what, sister? You are refusing to see your sin. You are refusing to repent from it, to flee from it. You, you are wanting to have the best of both worlds. We think it's proper at this time for you not to enjoy the, the Lord's table with us for, for a season. Why? Because this is a family. And family means something. We are bound into the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So for a season, we want you to feel that weight of not joining us at the family table. Again, it's not shaming. It's not showing them the door. Because guess what? I think very few times in church discipline would there actually be legitimate reason to show someone the door. 
Maybe not having them take the Lord's table with us, but I sure hope that they're continuing to sit here and hear the gospel preached to them, that they are around brothers and sisters who, who are no longer engaging that person as if they are part of the family, but in a sense that they have rem- are removing themselves from the family and are actively calling their brother and sister to repent, actively saying, look to Christ. Look to Christ, and I understand that you are going to struggle in your sin just like I struggle in my sin. But turn to Christ. Look to him. Fall down on your face at the foot of his cross and in the empty tomb and looking up to the, uh, him enthroned on high. See Christ in the beauty of the salvation that is yours. And when you see Christ... Let your sin, the celebration of that sin, fall to the wayside. And then, I'm happy to continue to walk in this troubled and dark world with you through this as you struggle against this sin. The goal is always restoration. And it's not an unloving thing to do, but a loving thing to do. But how then, bringing us to this verse that we misunderstand, how are we to find any comfort, any assurance that doing these hard things is actually the right thing to do? Well, this whole idea... When he says in verse 19, again, I say to you, if two, or th- if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What Christ is saying here is here. I know this is a hard thing to do. I know that walking through this, this sin with your brother is incredibly difficult. Let me give you some words of comfort. As you do these things, as two or three of you are gathered to walk through these steps of church discipline, I am with you. Calvin, again, on this passage, he says, men are not allowed the liberty of doing whatever they please. When we act outside, when we act in a sense of doing whatever we please rather than what the word of God tells us to do, that's where church abuse comes into play. Where we abuse one another because we are doing what seems right to us. And guess what? Usually doing what seems right to us is acting in that extreme of being, uh, of ignoring sin and the extreme of not being forgiving, being unforgiving, of being harsh. We're not allowed to act in the liberty of doing whatever we please, but Calvin continues, but God is declared to have the sole claim to the government of the church so that he approves and ratifies the decisions of, what, of which he is himself the author. So what Christ is here saying is when we walk with our sinful brother or sister, again, realizing we have sin as well, 
but that doesn't keep us from going to, to our brother and sister in love. But when we walk through this with them in accordance with the word of God, he's, he says, I'm there with you. I am in harmony with you. Confronting someone in their sin is often one of the most difficult things we have to do in the body of Christ. But Christ is assuring us that he, even in this most difficult of things to do, is ever present with us. This is why church discipline in this regard, and well, really in the broad context of teaching and even this reproof and, rebu- and rebuke, correction, this is why the church has always historically seen this as a mark of the true church. As, as one theologian said, when church discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. So as much as Christ is promising here, when you follow these steps of church discipline, I am there with you. The opposite is true. If you don't practice these things, you are operating outside of my commands. As we turn to communion this morning, then, it's appropriate for us to view our sin, to view the extremes that we uh, oftentimes operate in with one another. Again, the extremes of ignoring sin, the extreme of being too harsh, It's appropriate for us to see that God, through Christ, has not operated this way with us. It's a reminder that you have been forgiven much. So we then, out of pure gratitude, get to love much. We don't turn, as the unforgiving servant did, and strangle his fellow servant. No. We turn to that person who is in sin and we lovingly and graciously wrap our arms around them and call them to repent. How does this look? Does that take a day to walk through those steps that that Christ just painted for us? It's usually a very long road. Again, going back to this picture of these men sitting in lawn chairs on their friend's front yard. I think that really does capture what we ought to be doing with one another. Patiently waiting, sitting in someone's sin with them, calling them out, calling them to Christ. Christ is so beautiful. As we saw the picture of from, from the telescope, it's our God is great and greatly to be praised. And we are calling ourselves, I am calling Jeremy Litz. When I sin, I am calling me not to straighten up and say, okay, that my sin, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to be a better person from this day on. No. I'm looking to Christ. I'm looking to my great and faithful Savior 
and asking him to renew me, to break my heart, to help me to have a spirit like David had of hating his sin, of seeing his sin as ultimately an offense before God and falling down at the feet of our Savior, calling for him to lift us up. And he does, us, does that through the body of Christ as we go to one another in love. How many times must you forgive your brother or sister? Well, we deserve an eternity of God's wrath for what we have done. You and I cannot forgive our brother or sister any more than that. Over and over and over again. So as we come to the table, I would encourage you, if you do not, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ Jesus as your only hope in life and death, if you don't see him as the perfect savior that has been given to us for the forgiveness of our sins, if you're still holding on to all that this world has to offer and just enjoy the niceties of being part of a church culture, I would encourage you not to take the elements as they pass by you this morning. Because as we take of these elements, as we eat the bread and drink from the cup, drink the, the grape juice this morning, we are re being reminded of our participation with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. That we are resting in him, finding no other confidence, no other boast, but in Jesus Christ and him alone. Let me pray. Father, I again just thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace that you have shown us. And I pray that you would help us as, as much as my tendency is to ignore sin because I just don't like confrontation or as much as the opposite tendency is that I sometimes find myself in as well, being harsh toward the unbeliever. I pray that you would help me to fix my eyes on Christ and to see that middle course that you have shown us in, your, in the passage today that you have shown us on the cross and the empty tomb enthroned on high as our perfect high priest and mediator, that you desire restoration and forgiveness. Help us to have that heart attitude with one another. As we have seen your great love poured out through Christ in our own hearts, help that to flow naturally in, our, in being renewed a renewed creation, help that to flow out to our brothers and sisters, desirous of restoration and forgiveness. Help us to not grow weary of this task, but to delight in it, to sit with our brothers and sisters, being desirous of their restoration, being eager to forgiveness, forgive them as you have forgiven us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.